Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Rabo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which we play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Ivan Iron Man Stewart's Super Off-Road, which I will be referring to as Super Off-Road for the rest of the episode. Now, do you know how the real Ivan Stewart began his racing career? You will by the end of this episode. But before I get started with this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy Headlines. Welcome back to another episode of Sprite Castle, and welcome all my new listeners who are listening to Hacker Radio in Helsinki, Finland on 105.8 FM. Yes, that's right. Sprite Castle has been added to the playlist of Hacker Radio, which is a radio station that broadcasts both on FM and streams. Unfortunately, you have to have an IP address in Finland to be able to stream, so I haven't been able to listen to the show yet, but hey, I already listened to this show, <laughs> but I want to listen to all the other shows, but I can't uh, because I'm not in Finland. But uh, based on all the uh, new followers on Twitter that I have received that all uh, are non-English uh, speaking and have lots of uh, umlauts in their uh, text, I suspect that a few people in Finland are now listening to the show. So welcome to the show, guys. I'm always, uh, no matter where you live, in the world, in the in the globe, it is a well-known fact that the Commodore 64 is the best computer of all time. <laughs> it's globally proven. It's a fact. So welcome to the show, and uh, good luck on your radio station. And uh, I hope that there are lots of Commodore 64 users over uh, still. I know there. Are, I do know that there are some in uh, Finland, and. Uh, uh, in Helsinki. So welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, last week. So we, we did uh, some fun streams last week on Twitch. We streamed break street, which is a break dancing game. And we did that in honor of Shabadoo, the, uh, break dancer, probably best known for his role as uh, Ozone in Breakin' and Breakin' 2, the classic breakdancing movies from the mid-1980s. Um, you know, I, it's not like I uh, followed uh, his career closely after the Breakin' movies, but I was a child of the 1980s, and I was a fan of breakdancing. And so when I saw that he had passed away uh, in his uh, 60s, uh, which, first of all, I couldn't believe, you know, time flies, but I couldn't believe he was in his 60s. But uh, it was always a bummer to see uh, someone that starred in movies that you watched as a kid pass away. And so uh, we had some fun last week on Twitch. Of course, you can find that stream over at uh, youtube.com forward slash Amigos Retro Gaming. And the fun thing about that stream is not only is there footage of me playing uh, Break Street for the Commodore 64. But I also threw in some home movies of me breakdancing <laughs> from the uh, mid-1980s. So if you want to see uh, a very younger and thinner Jack Flack busting out the wave and some popping and locking and uh, even a backspin on a, a giant piece of cardboard in his living room, uh, then you want to check out that stream that uh, uh, we did last week and is now preserved forever, unfortunately, on YouTube. Uh, we did a stream this week of this week's game of Super Off-Road, and that was fun. Uh, I'll be talking about that game shortly. And, and um, I grew up playing Super Off-Road for the Super Nintendo, and that's the version, uh, unfortunately, that I prefer. So the first half of the stream is Super Off-Road for the Commodore 64, and the second half is Super Off-Road for the Super Nintendo. So if you want to compare those two versions and see the, an a 8-bit uh, version versus a 16-bit version, then you can see that. Uh, again, you can find that over at the uh, Amigos YouTube channel, which is Amigos Retro Gaming. Also this week, my mister arrived. The mister is the FPGA 
computer that allows you to flash cores and essentially turn it into most 8-bit or 16-bit computers and home video game consoles. So I have been spending a lot of time this week playing around with the Mister. Um, it uh, I had an original Mist. I got it about uh, well in, in 2013, so about seven years ago. Uh, I guess it's eight years ago now. Welcome to 2021. And I enjoyed it greatly. I enjoyed playing Amiga and a little bit of Atari ST, and of course a lot of 8-bit systems on it as well. And Unfortunately, now with the new hardware that's available for the Mister, development, of course, on the original Mist have basically dwindled and come to a stop. So that's uh, the way the hardware game works. The computer game, as you all know, every now and then you have to upgrade. You know, we're not all still playing PlayStation 2s. We bought PS3s and PS4s, and now there's a PS5, and <laughs> that's just the way uh, the game works. And so I purchased the new Mister, and I've... I've been playing around with it the past few days. I've been playing around with it a little bit too much, which is why Sprite Castle is a few days late. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of the funny things, whenever I get a new device that can uh, emulate, or I guess a lot of people with the Mr. say simulate different machines, is I always throw the Commodore 64 on there and see how it stands up, how it performs. And as I was doing that on the Mr., I happened to look behind or, or past the monitor because it's in the middle of my room. And on the other side of my room, I've got the Ultimate 64 setup. I have a bare metal or BMC64 running on a Raspberry Pi. Plus, I just talked about how I have the C64 that I bought, and I have a Raspberry Pi running uh, a RetroPie that has Commodore 64. So I've got, you know, between those and my original 64s, I have at least half a dozen machines in this room that will play Commodore 64 games, and I really just don't need them all hooked up. So I've got to really do some soul searching and figure out which ones I'm going to break down. And uh, I set up some shelves behind me. If you watch the streams, you can see far off uh, behind my head, there's some new shelves back there. And I'm going to retire some of the systems up there. My original Commodore 64 from the 80s is back there. And I've got some other machines. I think I've got a, um, a Commodore uh, C16 uh, up there. My Amiga 1200s on the wall. A few other old systems that I've retired, and I have some others. I want to I want to set up there on the wall. So uh, yeah, I don't need so many machines dedicated to playing Commodore games around the room. So I guess it will. I'll have to do some uh, playing and see how the Mister stands up against those. And and uh, I, I think you know I'll definitely keep the Ultimate. 64 hooked up one because i paid so much money for it <laughs> and two because it's just so convenient to play games on and and stream and do all these other things so um but uh yeah i'm looking forward to uh, trying a bunch of the different cores on the mister uh, i was playing some apple II games earlier today and and jumped from that into some just watched some amiga demos and had those running while i was doing some other stuff so Man, the Mr. FPGA, it's all uh, incredible technology, so I'm looking forward to uh, jumping into that. Speaking of new technology and advancements, Vice 3.5 was released, uh, I believe, last week. Vice is my go-to Commodore 64 emulator, and the version that gets ported to Windows is known as WinVice. Uh, but Vice is available for Windows and Macintosh computers and Linux. Um, I read through the release notes. It looks like there was some, some, obviously there was some upgrades, you know, there's always improvements on the emulation. This new version adds support for Lieutenant Colonel and CMD hard drives. So that's kind of interesting. You know, that's not what most Commodore 64 end users think of as storage you know we think of floppies that 99 of people unless you're running a bbs or or had some uh unique reason for mass storage most people used floppies on a day-to-day -day basis so that's kind of interesting that they added that um it said that they improved the support for light guns and light pins um and true drive emulation and uh some updates to the sid performance so um, if, uh, now I'll be honest with you, I still run an older version of vice because when I upgraded one time, it, it changed everything so much that it messed up, uh, a lot of my, uh, uh, automated scripts and things that I had running. So I, I, I haven't upgraded in a while, but I definitely want to give 3.5 a spin and see how that goes. 
I watched, uh, there's a new uh, episode of 8-Bit Show and Tell, which is Robin Harbrun's YouTube series. And the new episode is all about Commodore 64 kernels. Now, when I was a kid, I thought every Commodore 64 was the same. Uh, you know, I thought a bread bin and a C64C, I thought the only difference was, you know, the shape of the case. I didn't realize that, you know, the actual kernel would be different. And I even, you know, I have and had as a kid a SX64, and I knew that the colors were slightly different on the screen, but I didn't know why, and I didn't know that, uh, you know, that there were other changes built into the actual uh, computer's ROM. So Robin goes through, he shows some different uh, uh, peaks and pokes that you can do to get different results, uh, depending on the, the kernel that you're running, and shows some of the differences, and even shows some early bugs that are in the early kernel that were fixed in later uh, uh, versions of the kernel. So if you like digging into your Commodore a little bit and seeing what's under the hood, you should go check out 8-Bit Show and Tell this week and uh, uh, watch the latest video. I saw a, uh, a few new games released. One was called Sprite Invaders, which it's it's interesting to me. You know, a lot of times we see new games that are always building on other things, you know? Um, oh, you know, like, um, I don't like Galencia where you go, well, it's like Galaga, but it's better. It has this, it has that. And, and there are a lot of games like that. And there's, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a great, it's a great thing. You know, we, we all uh, stand on the, uh, the shoulders of our predecessors, but there's always something interesting when you see something that just goes back to the very basics and Sprite invaders is that, I mean, it is space invaders, just how you remember it, but it looks very, very good. Um, I don't know how long most people will play, Sprite invaders or, you know, any space invaders at this point, I, it's, um, goes back to a very basic style of gameplay. And I don't know how long it would hold people's attention, but, uh, I played it for a little bit and, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely space invaders. So, uh, of course, as you know, if you go over to podcast.robohair.com in the show notes for this episode, I always add links to all the games and everything that I mentioned in the news. So if you want to download Sprite Invaders, I'll have a download link to that on the show notes. Uh, I also saw that Soul Force was released. That's uh, Sarah Jane Avery's shoot 'em up for the Commodore 64. I believe it's a, um, I think I read that it has 20 different levels. It has so many things. Uh, this is not a free release. I believe the digital download is about seven pounds. So I'm not sure what that works out to in us. I think that's probably about nine, just under $10, I think. Um, but, uh, it certainly looks amazing. Like I haven't seen a, a shoot 'em up game that looks better than this in a long time. And of course, uh, she continues her development on Briley Witch Chronicles, which is a, a massive looking RPG that I believe is based on a series of books that she wrote. So uh, I know a lot of people, myself included, are really uh, waiting for that RPG to be released. But if you're a fan of shoot 'em ups in the meantime, go check out Soul Force. As far as uh, other software, there's a new application that came out uh, this week called Dithery Do, which is a fun little play on words. It is a image editor uh, that supports dither, uh, dithering. So that's, you know, whenever you slowly mix two colors together to get a third color. And uh, it's really easy to use. Actually, it's Python based and it creates uh, Commodore 64 compatible pictures, I believe in Koala format. Uh, so you can check out Dithery Do if you want to create some Commodore graphics on your PC and then save them and, and copy them right over. And finally, I saw a new issue of Retro Gaming Times had been released. I believe this is the 30th issue, and you can find this on ClassicPlastic.net. I've been reading Retro Gaming Times for a long time. They always have great articles and interviews. Um, it is uh, C64. Uh, I will say... Uh, C64-centric, but not necessarily limited to the Commodore 64. They do talk about other systems in there occasionally. So, um, But uh, Retro Gaming Times, free and uh, still going after 30 issues. So definitely, uh, if you want to go read some great interviews, go check that out. 
Now we're moving on to the question and answer portion of the program. And this week's question comes from Steve Sharippa, who is one of my 16-bit supporters on Patreon. And my 16-bit supporters, one of their benefits is being able to ask me a question once a month that I will answer on the air. Steve writes a very simple question that has a very long answer. Steve wants to know what my top 10 games are for the Commodore 64. Now, the thing is, I'm a very, uh, I'm very wishy-washy when it comes to my favorite games. Usually, my favorite games are the games that I'm playing at the time. (laughs) And so I try to set those aside at the moment, you know, and think about, of all the games that I've played, and I went through it, and it's no surprise that most of these have been reviewed on Sprite Castle or are in my list of games to review in Sprite Castle. And that's because this show is all about the games that I love, for the most part, <laughs> except for this week's game. Um, and so I went back through, and, and I, you know, I checked a couple lists, like, you know, Lemon64's top 100 lists, and other people's top lists and the list of games I reviewed and, and went through some of my own stuff. And so this is the, the best I could come up with as my top 10 games for the Commodore 64. These are in no order. And then when we get to the end, I'm going to give you another list. My top 10 games for the Commodore 64. Uh, the first game, you know, I'll just, I'll read them to you. I'm not going to, uh, you know what, I will number them, but but just keep in mind, these are not in any specific order. Uh, number one is Pirates. I always loved Pirates. I like it because it has this open world feel where you can get in a ship. You can sail anywhere you want to go in any order. You can buy, trade, you can choose to uh, make allies, you can choose to make enemies, you can declare war, you can make peace, whatever you want to do in that game. And I, I love that feeling of freedom that's in Pirates. So Pirates, number one. Number two, Skate or Die. I was a huge fan of skateboarding as a kid. I love the uh, epics style of mini games, uh, you know, summer games, winter games, things like that. So when EA uh, took that format and turned it and got a bunch of skateboarding minigames. That was a match made in heaven uh, for me. So Skater Die, number two. Number three, Wonder Boy. I've always been a fan of 8-bit and 16-bit platform games. Uh, I, I've always loved Wonder Boy. I like the fact that, uh, especially when you get the uh, skateboard power-up, that the game forces you to continue moving and roll forward, so you can't stop and analyze the levels. You, you're you're constantly rolling uh, to the right and have to do things. It's bright. It's colorful. It's a great game, uh, so that puts Wonder Boy in the top 10. Number four, Friday the 13th. I have played Friday the 13th. I've reviewed it. I've streamed it. I've talked about it. Friday the 13th is a really terrible game, but Friday the 13th makes the list because it's like those bad movies that are so bad that they're good. Um, it's a really cheesy game that allows you, it, it's a broken game uh, by default. It has bugs in it that that make the game not work the way they intended, uh, which just makes it so much more enjoyable. Uh, there's no other game on the list where you can go walk around, find a trident, and just stab camp counselors <laughs> probably for good reason uh but friday the 13th is a guilty pleasure of mine uh number five jump man uh you could also you could say any of the jump man games like jump man jr jump man lives um i i grew up playing jump man i played it on other computers i played it on the pc i played it on the commodore 64 it is a early platform game and every level has uh a third thing that you have to deal with. You always have to deal with falling and climbing ladders and jumping. And so you have to maneuver around that. Uh, There's also a, like a magic bullet that floats around slowly and fires at you. But then there's other things that happen like pieces of the, the um, platforms disappear or fires appear or, or meteors fall from the sky. So there's always a third thing going on just when you master the first two. Uh, It's a really fun platform game for the Commodore, and uh, I still love playing it today. Uh, The next game is Bruce Lee. 
Bruce Lee is a, another platform game. I really loved it as a child. Um, I, it's one of the few games that I have actually beat that I've gotten to the end of. Um, it, it combines all the things that I liked at that time. It was a platform game. It was a screen by screen type game. It involved ninjas and Bruce Lee and, and all kinds of stuff that I loved as a kid. So Bruce Lee makes the list for that. Uh, number seven is Bard's Tale. I grew up uh, before, prior to Bard's Tale and prior to having a, a Commodore, I played Wizardry on the Apple II, and that's where I cut my teeth on, uh, I don't know what you call them, I mean, a very simple dungeon crawler with uh, a 3D-style graphic. Uh, but Bard's Tale was like the awesome plus-one version of Wizardry. It added... Um, color pictures. It added animation to the monsters. It added uh, all these things. And, uh, you know, you could say add Bard's Tale 2 and 3 into that, but uh, Bard's Tale was definitely uh, a game that I just got lost in as a kid. And even today when I play, you know, very, very advanced dungeon crawlers, I always think about the layout, um, you know, just the way that Bard's Tale works. So that that's always a classic. Number eight, Obviously, Paradroid. Paradroid, if I were sorting these, Paradroid might be my like number one or two on the list. It's a, a game that I go back to again and again. Uh, it has you know major parts where you uh, maneuver your way through a spaceship. You have to do these mental-type circuitry battles to uh, take over and clone. You're not really cloning them. You're a helmet and you jump on their head. But <laughs> to take over enemy robots... Uh, you have to maneuver elevators and, and move up and down throughout the game. And um, it's just one of those games that you can play over and over and over and never get tired of it. So Paradroid's number eight. Number nine is Bounces, which is a game that I reviewed recently. It's a very um, obscure game. It's the game where you have uh, two two knights that fight. There's a knight and a barbarian, and you, you um, are tied with a, a piece of elastic to a wall. It's a very strange game, uh, and it's a game that I grew up playing with my friends. Uh, so anybody that came over to my house to play Commodore 64 games also played this, and, and we would battle and stuff. So it's a game that I associate with that era of Commodore 64. It's not a great one-player game. It is a terribly entertaining two-player game. And finally, number 10, I put on the list Wasteland. This is arguable, and I could move this one around. Uh, but I, I always enjoyed Wasteland because it was kind of a combination of Barge Tale and Ultima, but with that cyber cyberpunk feeling where instead of having you know types of armor or, or looking for maces and swords, you were getting Uzis. And you were building these armies to go out and fight mutants and go around and wander around. So I always loved Wasteland. Uh, it really had that feeling of immersion that you were in that world. And all those games, of course, fall out, obviously. And, and games like that, I, you know, obviously owe a lot to Wasteland. So that was the top 10 that I came up with. And about half an hour later, I came and sat down and I wrote another top 10 list. <laughs> So this is my second top 10 list, back to back. So you asked for my top 10, I'm giving you my top 20. Um, <clears throat> list number two, the first one I have on here is Realm of Impossibility. Realm of Impossibility is, uh, again, a game that's more fun with two players. It involves going through uh, two, one or two players, running through levels. You have to go down, 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 down into dungeons, retrieve something and come all the way back up. Uh, you have to avoid zombies and snakes and things like that. You can cast spells. But the twist is that every level looks like it was designed by M.C. Escher. There are paths that turn into shadows that are dead ends. There are uh, parts that you know go up that really aren't going up. It's very confusing and fun game to look at. So Realm of Impossibility. Uh, I put Whizball on the list. As a kid, I wasn't a huge fan of Whizball. I liked the way that it played, and I liked that it went around, but I didn't understand the game mechanic, and it wasn't until I started playing games uh, since starting Sprite Castle, and I took another look at Whizball, and I actually got the instructions and found out just what a great game it is. Um, you know, once you understand 
the goal of what's going on and being able to move between the different platforms and things. Uh, it, it's, it is a, a very fun game. So Wizball's number two on the second top 10 list. Number three, international karate. I mean, we've got to have a, uh, a person versus person fighting game or, um, you know, person versus person, uh, versus person of uh, an international karate, um, you know, does the best that it can with the Commodore 64's controls. It's not frustrating or it doesn't feel as limited as a lot of other fighting games on the C64. So, uh, International Karate makes the list. Buggy Boy is another one on my list. I love Buggy Boy. Um, I owned a Buggy Boy arcade cabinet. Uh, I was a big fan of this game and I, I used to play this all the time as a kid. And, um, uh, I recently streamed this one and I didn't do very good. <laughs> so I, I haven't spent as much time with it recently as I used to as a kid, but uh, Buggy Boy is a classic. And speaking of buggies, Up and Down is the next game on the list. It's another one that I had very early on in my Commodore 64 collecting. I played it a little bit in the arcade, but uh, really the version that I'm most familiar with is the version on the Commodore 64. This is the buggy driving game where you drive up and down mountains and, and collect flags of different colors. And once you get all the flags, uh, one of each color, you, you move to the next round. It's a, a very simple and fun game with a, a fun jumping uh, mechanic that uh, just makes it interesting. On the downhill slide of the of the uh, second top five here, uh, we've got Ghostbusters, which is a classic game. I as a kid, I didn't understand the big picture of Ghostbusters. I only understood the mini games. I understood driving around and vacuuming up Ghostbusters, and I understood going to the buildings and setting the traps and capturing ghosts. But I didn't understand. Uh, you know, the big picture and, and waiting until the, the PK numbers had gotten so high and going downtown and, and, uh, fighting, you know, stay puff marshmallow man and all, and all those things. Uh, so I loved it as a kid. I love it even more as an adult. Number seven, impossible mission. I don't know that any Commodore 64, uh, player wouldn't put this on their list. You might put impossible mission one. You might put impossible mission two. There's no, 8-bit Commodore fan that doesn't know the phrase, stay a while, stay forever. Um, it's another game that has that layer of complexi complexity where you're assembling uh, a map and puzzle pieces and things like that. But even as a kid, when I didn't get all that, it was just beautiful to look at, to watch the animation, and to, to uh, try to avoid the robots and search all the pieces. So it, it's definitely a classic. Number eight, uh, Montezuma's Revenge. This was a early platform game. Graphically, a lot of games have surpassed it, but uh, you know it it has puzzle aspects. It has gaming platform aspects. You have to avoid rolling skulls and spiders and things like that. You have to pick up keys, but not too many of any one color because then you won't be able to open doors of other things. So there are a lot of uh, uh, different puzzle things going on in the game. It's uh, one of those games that you can play over and over and over, and, and um, uh, it'll take you a long time to beat it. And number nine, Load Runner. Load Runner has been uh, one of my favorite games since you know I was ten years old. I played it on the Apple, I played it on the PC, I played it on the Commodore sixty four. I've reviewed it on the show. I've talked about the downfall of the Commodore sixty four version of only having one button, but it's still a classic. It's still fun to play, and it still makes the list. And the last one on my second list here is Bubble Bobble. There are uh, tons of arcade conversions. And I could have put any of them. I could have put Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., um, Pac-Land, any of those. But Bubble Bobble is fairly uh, accurate as far as a arcade translation goes. And it's a lot of fun. And it's fun with one player. It's fun with two player. Um, it has music that will worm its way into your brain like a little alien worm thing. Uh, so uh, Bubble Bobble rounds out the list. So, Steve, thank you for the question. Um, I really wanted to get it down to the top 10, but I just couldn't because I just have so many games that I love on the Commodore 64. Now, if you would like your question answered on the show, you could go to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara and uh, sign up as a 16-bit supporter. And the 16-bit supporters are the ones who can ask a question each month. This podcast is made possible 
by all my supporters over at patreon.com. So I want to list all uh, of my current supporters under the 8-bit supporter list. We have Mr. Matt Hill, C-Dubs, Carrie Clanton, Zeke Pabsky, Alan Hudgens, Mitsuyama, Aunt Page, Mr. Bundy, Hermski, Stephen Burt, Mike McLaughlin, Gary Heather, Darren Folds, Rydar and Christopher Bow, Armadon Restall, Olav Hope, David Hearn, John Schaller, Eric Stryanisi, Steve Rasmussen, Chris Folds, Garrett Allier, Scrap Arcade, Graham Vobke, Rick Reynolds, Scott Lambert, Mark Alley, Jake Notamaker, Cobra Kai, John Treholt, and Roy Jacobs. And an extra super thanks to my 16-bit supporters, Steve Sharippa, Matt Nicholson, Dave Zilly, Patrick Markey, and John Morrison. These are the people behind the scenes that keep Spry Kessel going. So thank you, guys. If you'd like to send me feedback about this episode or any episode of Sprite Castle, you can email me at robohara at robohara.com. Contact me on Twitter at Commodore. Follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast. Catch me hanging out on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave me a voicemail on the Flag Podcast hotline at area code 405-486-YDKF. Whew. That was a lot of headlines this week, all of which were brought to you by my local paper boy who just ran his bike into a break dancer. That's rad. Now that we've covered this week's headlines, let's talk about this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. Well, you know, each week on Sprite Castle, I like to prepare a little snack that uh, reminds me either of the game or of my my childhood as I played the game. And I don't like to pick the same snack twice, but I'm making an exception this week because this is a snack that I haven't picked since episode two of Sprite Castle. In episode two, I had a hot dog and onion rings from Sonic, and that was when I covered Winter Games and the onion rings I actually laid out as a (laughs) homage to the Olympic rings. And I had five onion rings uh, laid out like that. And so this week I am also eating hot dogs, but they're eating hot dogs for a different reason. And so I thought that would be okay. And the reason why, well, first of all, is because that episode was uh, almost 10 years ago. So I, (laughs) I feel like I'm kind of covered on that, but uh, for Christmas this year, now, you know, I, I set up my, uh, we had my workshop built and I converted part of the workshop into a dedicated movie theater, like a home theater room. And it has a little lobby outside and I have been setting up the lobby to look and feel like a movie theater lobby. And so for Christmas, my father got me one of those, uh, full size popcorn machines. You know, the ones that are five, six feet tall and and are sitting on top of a cart that has wheels and stuff. It's one of those. And I've already been trying that out this week and, and trying some popcorn. And, and, you know, uh, it's not just that I want popcorn while I'm watching the movie. I want the theater out there to smell like popcorn. (laughs) I just want it to, uh, you know, when you go out there to remind you of a movie theater. But I was looking online at home theater things that uh, they offer on Amazon and some other places, and I found a hot dog. Uh, I guess I would call it like a, a steamer slash rotisserie <laughs> type grill. You know those things that you see? We used to see them at movie theaters. I remember seeing them at the drive-in. Uh, and now I think sometimes you see them at uh, convenience stores. But it's these, it's this little grill thing and you put your hot dogs on it and they sit there and they roll over and over and uh and they get cooked that way and uh you also add water to a part of the top and there's a little trap door and you lift that up and you put hot dog buns in the top and they slowly get steamed and so uh you know when you're ready for hot dogs to go out and watch your movie you take your little hot dog wiener and you could put, you know, you don't have to put the cheapest ones. You could put a bratwurst on there, I suppose, or um, probably anything that's already cooked that just needs to be heated up. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I put uh, some kosher, not uh, a kosher, but, um, uh, oh, just, you know, an all beef dog. 
I put that on there and I, and I steam some hot dog buns. And, uh, so I've got this now I've got it set up out there in the movie theater, but I was trying it out earlier and I ran it in the kitchen for a little while. And, and, you know, my wife, uh, made this big fancy lasagna and, and, uh, salad and all this and said, Hey, we're having lasagna. I was like, oh, I already, I made some, uh, hot dogs off this little hot dog heater thing. <laughs> So I don't think she was too happy with me, but, uh, uh, but that's what I had. And so, you know, this week's game is all about, uh, off-road racing and, and going to, uh, uh, seeing monster trucks drive around in a big thing. And I thought, you know, that's the kind of thing when you go to those events, you know, you go get you a hot dog and uh, a drink and you go sit down and you watch these trucks and stuff. So, uh, I got to try out my, my new hot dog roller that I got for Christmas and uh, I think um, what better way uh, to celebrate one of these uh, goofy types of games than sit down with a big old hot dog and going in and doing some off-road racing with Ivan Iron Man Stewart. Some people say it's impossible to tell where the flesh and blood stops and the machine begins. But it really doesn't matter. Whenever you put Ivan Iron Man Stewart together with a Toyota truck, you know where they're going to finish. Ivan Iron Man Stewart's Super Off-Road was published for the Commodore 64 in 1990 by Virgin Mastertronic and developed by Leland Corporation. It is a game for one to three players that uses joystick and keyboard controls. Leland is an interesting company. The core programmers from Leland came from another company you may be familiar with known as Cinematronics, who are best well-known for Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. Now, Cinematronics went bankrupt in 1987, and they were acquired by another company called Trade West. And so Trade West set up their Commodore 64 gaming division and renamed it after one of the co-founders of Trade West, whose name was Leland Cook. And so the sub the split was known as Leland Corporation. Now, as time went on, uh, Trade West was then acquired by WMS Industries in 1994, and that was the end of the Trade West name. Leland titles, there are several that you would know, but for the Commodore 64, you'd probably be most familiar with John Elway's quarterback. They released Viper. Uh, of course, they did Super Off-Road, and uh, later... Uh, Dragon's Lair 2 is actually listed as a Leland title. Now, even though the game was developed by Leland, it was published by Virgin. Now, Virgin Games, uh, as most people know, they got their start on 8-bit home computers, and then they purchased Mastertronic. In 1989, now, a lot of people think of Mastertronic as being budget type games. And so what Virgin did was they used the Mastertronic name for game reissues. So as they acquired games or re-release games, they would put those under the Mastertronic label and they used the Virgin Mastertronic label for their full price titles. Now, in 1993, they changed their name from Virgin Games to Virgin Interactive Entertainment. Uh, and then they were eventually purchased by Titus. And so Virgin uh, Entertainment was a subsidiary of Titus. And then in 2003, I guess this was part of another acquisition, the whole thing was changed to Avalon Interactive. So there are tons and tons of Virgin Games throughout the years. Uh, some of the ones that I saw... That looked most familiar. There were some early titles like Hideous Bill and Bugs and Falcon Patrol. Ghetto Blaster is uh, probably the first time that I noticed the name. Dan Dare was released by them, Shogun. And uh, they did ports of a lot of Sega games to other systems. Uh, they released uh, Shinobi. They also did Golden Axe. Uh, so they they produced uh, a lot of games for 8 and 16-bit consoles for many years.
off-road is a mostly top-down, I guess with a slightly isometric view of a dirt track, of multiple dirt tracks. It is a game that features four giant trucks racing around a dirty, muddy course. Now, every race has four trucks, but up to three of those can be controlled by human players. So you can have one human player, two, or three. But no matter how many humans, there are always four trucks in the race. So whichever trucks are not being controlled by humans are controlled by the computer. Uh, As a kid, I thought this was created by the same people that did Championship Sprint, uh, Atari. I thought this was just basically, and the best way to describe it is, it is the off-road version of Championship Sprint, even though it was not made by the same people. Uh, but there are a lot of similarities in Championship Sprint. You race through the tracks, you pick up bonus items, you avoid obstacles uh, that appear in the racetrack, and at the end you win money based on how you place, and that money can be spent on upgrades for your vehicle. All of those things apply to Super Off-Road as well. It is basically the same style game except for instead of you know indie track cars, you're racing 4x4 off-road trucks. Uh, the arcade version and this is kind of interesting, is known as Iron Man Ivan Stewart's Super Off-Road. So the Iron Man is the first word in the title. A lot of the 8-bit releases, including the Commodore 64, change the order, and the name of this title is Ivan Iron Man Stewart's Super Off-Road. So they move the word Iron Man in between Ivan Stewart's first and last names. Later releases drop Ivan Stewart's name, probably to save money on licensing. And so for some systems like uh, Sega Master System, this game is just known as Super Off-Road. As you play this game, you'll also see a lot of endorsements for Toyota. Uh, Toyota Pickups, that was the sponsor, uh, that's the the, uh, brand of pickup that Ivan Stewart drove. And you can see Toyota uh, on the title screen and in the background, you can see banners that say Toyota. But in later releases, like for the SMS, uh, Toyota has completely been removed from the game as well. So um, in regards to pop culture context, I don't really know that there's nothing about this game that really requires Ivan Stewart's name. And Stewart, Ivan Stewart didn't do anything around this time. He had been a uh, a race truck driver since the 70s. So there wasn't anything specific in the late 80s that ties him to this game. And honestly, I never really understood why they paid anybody for his likeness. I didn't know a single person that knew who Iron Iron Man Stewart was as a kid. I mean, I my friends weren't into 4x4 off-road racing, but uh, I don't know that a lot of kids that hung out in arcades were into 4x4 off-road racing. So it was always a bit of a curiosity that it had his name on it. Uh, and then again, with the, the phrasing moved around, it made it to where this game had multiple different names. So I don't know how well that worked to their advantage, but there it is. The box for the Commodore 64 has Ivan Stewart right on the front. Uh, it says Ivan Iron Man Stewart Super Off Road. Uh, in just those six words, there are three different fonts. <laughs> Um, and, uh, then across the word super, there are red, orange, and yellow tire tracks, which is kind of interesting. And this is really odd, but it made me think of Tron because you know how in Tron you had the, uh, red, orange, and yellow, uh, Tron cycles. And for some reason that just jumped out at me. Uh, you have a truck that is jumping, uh, out of the box towards uh, you, And it says Toyota right in the front. So Toyota definitely got their money's worth when it came to investing in this property. In the lower left corner of the box is a picture of Ivan Stewart standing next to the arcade machine, (laughs) which I think is so interesting. It's so funny. Uh, So it conveys a few things. One, you now know that this was an arcade port. If you weren't aware and picked up the box, you go, oh, this is based on an arcade game. Uh, And then that was probably the first and and until I got YouTube, the only time I saw 
Ivan Stewart. So there he was right there on the front of the box. And then, of course, on the bottom right, you have the logo for Virgin Games. And then at the bottom, it says the Arcade Smash. Again, if you weren't aware that it was an arcade game, they tell you a few times. When you boot the game up, it comes right up to a logo that says Iron Man Speed Shop. And it shows three different girls. Now, one of the things and complaints I think that this game got over the years is that um, it uses some 80s tropes when it comes to trophy girls. And so, of course, all of the racers are men. And at the end of each race, all the men are standing on their podium with their trophies. And then they have these women that are scantily clad in bikinis uh, that are hanging off of them. And I remember, I mean, as a teenage boy in an arcade, I was like, all right, all right. <laughs> Maybe I will get into a monster truck racing. Look at all these hot ladies that will be surrounding me. Um, but now, you know, as I'm a little bit older, and uh, now that I'm a lot a bit older, I should say, looking at it, it I don't know, it seems a little, uh, I don't know, it, it, it feels a little awkward. And not only that, but on this uh, version, They've really taken a shortcut and that all the girls are identical. So it's not like there were different girls that were standing near the podium for first, second, and third. It's just, you know, the, the same girl. And if you win, uh, you know, they just have clones of these girls. And it, it really, I don't know, there's something about it where uh, it, it's even more, um, I don't know the right word, but it, it takes the humanity out of them a little bit more like in the uh, arcade version at least they were three different people. And now that it's all the same person, it just represents uh attractive girl. You know what I mean? Instead of, Hey, it's this girl or that girl congratulating you. It's, it's almost like another trophy. And so it feels a little, a little strange. Um, and something that's, that's um, one part of the game. I would say that didn't, didn't age well. Um, it moves very quickly off of that to a credit scene. And then there are, is a long list of credits. Um, and you know, every company that has some sort of trademark or copyright associated with this game is going to be listed. So you've got credits all on one screen for, uh, the, the, uh, arcade concept for who published it. The technical advisors are listed. It says copyright 1989 Leland. It says copyright 1989 Virgin Games slash Virgin Mastertronic. It says copyright uh, Great Gold uh, Limited 1990. I mean, so you have all these copyrights plus a lot of people's names and stuff. So there's an awful lot of credits that you don't typically see before a game starts. Um, it is something like you would see possibly during um, this era in an arcade as a game is cycling through screens. So maybe it's, it's a bit of an homage to that. Now, uh, to start the game, you need to pick which car that you want to drive, and those are just controlled. You don't pick a color. You just pick your controller. So for the Commodore 64, you've got joystick controller port 1, which is player 1. You've got port 2, which is player 2. And then player 3 has to use the keyboard. Um, let's talk about the joystick controls first. Left and right, steer your truck. Uh, and that is the same as any other port of the game. Uh, the button launches, uh, uses nitro. And nitro is like a boost, a turbo boost that uh, everybody that's seen uh, the Fast and the Furious know, <laughs> knows what nitrous is. So nitro, you press your button and uh, your truck will shoot forward at a, a quick rate of speed and you'll get a little boost if you need to pass somebody or whatever. But as you know, the Commodore 64 only has one fire button. So to accelerate, you have to press forward on the joystick and to hit the brakes or decelerate, you pull back towards you on the joystick. Now, you really, in a game like this, you don't want to be holding, pressing forward the entire time, um, especially when you're having to constantly turn left and right to turn on this track. So the developers put something into this game that I don't know works well. And it is basically your accelerator also kind of works like cruise control. So if you press the joystick forward, and uh, let's say you just go to, to 50% acceleration. And by the way, there is nothing on the screen that tells you that you're going 50% acceleration. You just, let's just say that, that you're going half as fast as your truck can go. 
If you stop pressing forward, your truck will just continue going at that speed. So if you hold the joystick forward all the way until you hit 100%, you know, as fast as your truck will go and let off the joystick, you will just keep driving at that speed. So you only have to steer left and right. Now, the problem with this is that unlike the arcade game and many of the other ports that I'm more familiar with, it's very difficult to navigate these tracks while at full speed. So if you could go through the whole track at 100%, then this would probably work great, but you can't. So as you speed your truck all the way up to 100%, you will constantly be getting stuck and going the wrong way and stuck against the outside railing. And it's really, really a pain. And that thing right there is one of the biggest frustrations of the game. It's a it's a strange control system for the acceleration. I don't know what they could have done to do it better. I mean, I would have almost swapped those things and made the button be your acceleration and then press forward for the nitrous or space bar for nitrous. I mean, it's tough when you got three players, but maybe swapping those around. But the way this is just makes it really difficult to play. And if you think the joystick players have it bad, player three has to use the semicolon for gas, the forward slash for brake, the at symbol to turn left, the up arrow to turn right, and uh, the period to do nitro. Now, if you look at a Commodore 64 keyboard, it's not as awkward as it sounds, but it's still pretty awkward. So, again, the the goal of every round is uh, to, obviously, win the race. You have to get around and, and do five laps in your truck, and you have to come in first place. Now, you start the game with two credits, which basically is like how many lives you have. And unlike some other ports, and I'm going to talk about the Super Nintendo port a little bit, um, in the Super Nintendo port of this game, you don't have to come in first place every time. You only have to beat all the other AI trucks. Uh, No, that's not even true. You just... Basically, you can't come in last. So you have to be first, second, or third place, and you don't lose a life. You get to continue. In the Commodore 64 version, which I do believe is the way that the arcade version works, and I think possibly also the way that the Amiga port works, uh, you have to beat all the AI-driven trucks. So if you and your buddy are playing two-player, and you come in first and he comes in second, everything's good. But if you're playing by yourself and you come in second place, and by the way, second place is not bad. Second place, you're still on a podium with a chick next to you and a big trophy, and you get $90,000. That's considered a loss. So you have to, if you're playing by yourself, you have to come in first every race, which makes this very difficult to continue playing. Now, again, if you had three players Everybody just has to beat the the fourth computer player, and and uh, you know it wouldn't be that bad. But uh, as it stands, with one player, you've got to come in first place every time. Now, when you finish a race, no matter whether you win or lose, you get some money. You're going to get a uh, hundred thousand dollars for first place, ninety thousand for second, eighty for third, and seventy for fourth. Uh, that money can be spent on upgrades, and there are uh, five upgrades that you can apply to your truck. There's a top speed, there's acceleration, which makes you speed up faster. There are shocks, which help you from not bouncing around all the time, which this game is crazy about. And there are tires that help you stick to the ground and not slide like you're driving on ice. Um, So top speed's 100,000, acceleration is 80,000, shocks are 60,000, and tires are 40,000. And each one of these has five levels that can be obtained. So you can get tires, you know, you start there at zero, but you build them up one, two, three, four, five over time. The last thing you can buy is additional shots of nitro. Now, you start with 20 shots of nitro, which is a lot. Um, but if you're going to try to finish first place in every race, you're going to be using those. Now, each of the tracks that you race on have different obstacles. Some of them have water. Some of them have hay bales. Uh, so you can either go around these things or in some you have to go over them and some you have to jump over them. Uh, But there are also bonus items on the track, and those are usually either money 
or additional shots of nitro. Now, the money is uh, used, again, at the end of the round to upgrade your truck, and the nitro can be used immediately. But you have to be careful because sometimes the, those uh, bonus items appear off the main path, and so you kind of have to make a choice. Do you want to swing wide on the corner and possibly lose position to pick up money which doesn't do you that much good if you lose <laughs> and you're out of credits. So, um, but those things can be used to your advantage at the end of each round. Now, where, where, where did this game go wrong? I loved this game so much. I love uh, the arcade version. I really love the Super Nintendo version. What happened to the Commodore 64 version of this? And there are two. Well, there are three things. I talked about the acceleration and the controls. That's the first thing that really makes this game difficult to drive. The second thing is that your cars seem to not have any weight. It's almost like you're driving remote control cars or or driving trucks on the moon or something. The, the gravity and the physics just aren't quite right. And so as you're hitting these little bumps, your car is constantly bouncing around. Sometimes you'll get turned around the wrong way. Sometimes another truck will drag you or pin you against the wall and you can't move. Uh, So it's very easy to get stuck. And really, it only takes about two bad turns to make it where you can't win the race. So at that point, and now you've got to try your best for five laps, knowing that there's no way that you're going to win. So The physics make it difficult to play. And then the third thing is the rails. And uh, every version of this game has rails surrounding the track. And in most games, the rails work like rails work in real life, where if your car is up against a rail, you just keep sliding in that direction. But the rails on this game don't work that way. They're almost like, I want to say that they're like rubber bumpers in a pinball game but even that makes you feel like you would bounce off them you don't like if you hit a bumper at a 45 degree angle you'll just press up against it you don't keep sliding you just stick to it like it's sticky rubber or something so every other version of this game uh, as you're going around the track you could be hauling into a corner too fast but then you just steer early and hit that inside rail and then you could take the corner real tight and swing around but in this version you can't do that if you hit that thing too early you'll either bounce off or just kind of stick there or do something weird uh and it doesn't work and so it just it's infuriating the way this game controls uh which is really frustrating because it looks so good it sounds good it's got great music Uh, the graphics of the trucks are good. The graphics on the tracks are good. So it looks really good, but it's not until you're actually the guy holding the joystick and trying to win these races that you realize all the problems with this game. Now, Super Off-Road got a lot of high reviews, and what you'll find is that early on, the reviews are very high, and when magazines revisited it, it usually got a much lower score. Some of the early scores uh, on Lemon 64, it has 7.9. On Computer and Video Game Magazine, it has 94%. Uh, Euro Commodore gave it an 87, and Zap gave it an 85%. But when you look at repeat reviews later on, Commodore Force gave it a 64%, and Commodore Format gave it a 64%, and later gave it a 38%. So it's definitely a game that initially looks really good again and sounds good, but the longer you play it, the more frustrating it gets. And it doesn't get easier. It gets worse. <laughs> you just get more and more frustrated with this game. At least I did. Now, Super Off-Road was ported to lots of different systems. As I mentioned, it began life as an arcade game. It was uh, released in arcades in 1989. The majority of the ports came in 1990. It was on lots of uh, 16 or uh, 8-bit machines, uh, like the Commodore 64. Uh, It was on the Amstrad CPC. It was also on uh, 16-bit machines. Oh, uh, the NES uh, is a 1990 release. It was released for DOS, uh, the Atari ST, and the Amiga. Those are all 1990 releases. Um, Two years later, it was released on the Game Boy. 
the Game Gear and the Super Nintendo. In 1993, this game was ported to the Lynx and the Sega Master System, and it was released again in 1994 for the Sega Genesis. So this was definitely a title that made its way to lots of different systems, and it plays a little bit different on each one of them. So uh, you can't say, hey, if you don't, you know, I, I love the Super Nintendo version. The Amiga version is pretty good. Uh, but just because those are good doesn't mean that the Commodore 64 version is necessarily good or the Lynx version. Uh, so, you, you know, if you want to try those out on di different systems, you'll just have to try each one of them out. Uh, on eBay, I think probably due to the licensing, this is a fairly expensive title. I found copies listed right now between $30 and $50, and that's about the prices that I found uh, complete copies of the game that had sold. So if you want to pick up a copy on eBay, that's about the price range uh, that you're looking for. And now let's get into my personal memories of Super Off-Road. Now, as I've talked about before, I got my Commodore 64 all the way back in 1985, and I spent the better half of the, the last half, I should say, of the 1980s downloading as many games as I could. And by the time I graduated from the Commodore 64 and pretty much moved into the world of IBMs and IBM PCs, I had downloaded just over 600 discs of software. And I still own all those floppy disks. I still have them in a large disk box right here in my computer room. But if you look at the dates on those last, it, it goes up to about 620. That's about, you know, I numbered all my disks and that's right around where my disks in. And if you look at the dates on the games that are in those last, uh, you know, 10 or 15 disks, they're all copyright 1990. Uh, copyright. Those games were copyrighted. Who knew? Um, but uh, they're all 1990. And this was also a 1990 release. So this is not a game that I originally had as a kid. Uh, it must have come out around the time that I hung up my 8-bit uh, ways and finally powered off my, my 1541 for, oh, about a decade until I, I hooked the system back up. Now, what I did play this game a lot on was the Super Nintendo. And my, my buddy Jeff uh, had a rental card to a, a mom-and-pop rental shop, and we would go there, and when I would spend the night at his house, his mom would take us, and we would, uh, you know, get... Uh, Oh, horror movies or ninja movies. That was pretty much what we rented. But they also rented uh, uh, Nintendo games. And then later they rented Super Nintendo games. And uh, so I would, you know, this was later. We'd moved out, but I would go over to Jeff's house. And, uh, uh, you know, we would rent Super Nintendo games. And so I think that's where we first found this game. Now, of course, around the time that I got into all this, I also got my um, console copier, uh, my Super Wildcard for the Super Nintendo, and uh, that allowed you to uh, take cartridges and dump them to floppies or download ROMs from BBSs or the internet and put them onto floppies and play them on uh, the Super Nintendo. So whichever way that happened, this was one of the early games that I got, and I played this game a lot. This was like one of those games that I would just sit down and zone out to and just play over and over and over. Um, and, and I just really love this game and it's fun, uh, for one player, it's fun for two player, but again, I'm talking about the super Nintendo version, but I did play an awful lot of it to the point where, uh, when I started collecting arcade games, I thought this might be an arcade cabinet that I like to own. And so I had a friend, uh, who lived in Dallas, his, uh, name online was 98 pace car. And, uh, he had a bunch of arcade games and we worked out a deal and he sold me his uh, Super Off-Road Arcade Cabinet. And I believe, according to my notes, I paid $150 for it. And this was in 2008. And it also had the Track Pack installed, which uh, was a uh, addition that you, you could get in the arcade that added even more different uh, tracks to race on. So I had this in my home arcade when I owned all my different arcade machines. And boy, did I love playing it. I would just drive around and, and um, 
Uh, it had a little bit of a flaky monitor, if I remember right. And it, of course, it had a, a 25 inch, uh, medium res monitor, which was super expensive to work on. Um, and, and so the best thing to do on that machine was I had to turn it on and let the, <laughs> the monitor warm up. And then I could turn it off and then turn it back on and it would work. Uh, but I, I had kept it for several years and played it that way. And, and of course, you know, it was a three player version. So, You'd have a couple friends come over to the arcade and everybody would sit around and we would just race and race. And man, so I just loved this game for the Super Nintendo and I loved the arcade version. And so when I started diving back into the Commodore 64 library uh, over the past five, 10 years or whatever, uh, I, I found that it was available for the Commodore 64 and I played it and I'm just so disappointed that it's not as good as all those other versions because I just feel like, um, uh, you know, it definitely could have been, it could have been better. For graphics, I will give Super Off-Road 4 out of 5 shots of Nitro. The trucks look great, the tracks look great, no complaints there. Uh, For music, I will also give the game 4 out of 5 shots of Nitro. The songs are catchy, they're not as good as some of the other ports, but they're really, really good and and definitely great for the Commodore 64. The sound effects, I will give 3 out of 5 shots of Nitro. There aren't as many sound effects as I would like, and they're definitely uh, overtaken by the music. Overall gameplay, I'm going to give this game 3 out of 5 Nitros. It's interesting to play, and you might enjoy driving the truck around the track, and it's definitely one to check out just for the graphics and the sound. But I think you'll find there are other ports of this game that are a lot more enjoyable on other consoles and computers. Thanks again for tuning in to Sprite Castle. If you'd like to send me feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me at robohara at robohara.com, contact me on Twitter at Commodore, follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast, catch me hanging out on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, or leave me a voicemail on the Flack Podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support this show and gain access to behind-the-scenes blog posts and other bonus features, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara to learn more. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, the Sprite Castle RSS feed at podcast.roboherra.com, and through the Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. To hear more podcasts from me, check out You Don't Know Flat, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness. You can find links to all these shows at podcast.roboherra.com. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Vintage is the New Old, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to rounding those burns, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle!